We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. DJ Ferguson H Y. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the new greatest show on earth. Better in the dark. Yeah. Concession stand now, get your popcorn, get the drinks, get the food. You don't want to miss a second because the show is about to start. And welcome to the show with shows better in the dark slash dope audio. Ready to start it? Reality to party. Podcast excellence, no doubt about it. Uh, we got movies, uh, we got TV, we got Tom and D. Get where you need to be so you can digest all the words they digress. Better get paper ready for the viewers they present. Uh, DJ, uh, Ferguson, Brooklyn in the house, dream team, heaven sent, but they will bust your ass if your shit come back. Call it living color, cause our homies don't play that. Facts only, fashion your facsimiles, but ain't no power greater than the BITD. So you can get with this, or you can get with that. Just know the show is where it's always Welcome at. to the big show, brought to you from the BK, home of Jay-Z and Biggie, what's really left to say to the boroughs? It's time for better in the dark. Yeah, got time on my left, Derek on my right, bust ahead, serving notice all damn night. Tell your baby mamas, it's time for better in the dark. Yeah, and we out. And until we get back in touch with you. So watch that rabbit. Seven. So <laughs> Welcome to the show that almost never happened. This show has been so long in the making, you have no idea. Oh, Lord. Monroe catching a flat twice. You having some tenant problems, me having some crazy job problems. Well, occasionally these things do happen in the course of human events. Mm-hmm. You had things that were going on with you, I had things that were going on with me. And every time it looked like we were getting ready to do this episode, something happened. To get in the way, but now we are here, we're doing it. Until today, when Monroe catches her second flat, and I'm calling you going, I don't care, I'm coming over, we're going to do this. Yeah, Tom said, no man, listen, I'm not letting it stop me this time. Well, see, last time, to be honest, the weather was kind of inclined, yeah. today was better, that's why mm-hmm. I said, okay, if you, because last time was on. Uh, it but, was raining off and Yeah, it was raining yeah, off and on. In fact, I got caught in it a little bit. Really? Taking Monroe. We should mention that Monroe's the bike. Yeah, Monroe is Tom's bike. Yeah. That he rides now instead of taking public transportation. Right. One of my coworkers insisted I had to name it after a woman. So since we have Kristen McPhee as the computer, mm-hmm. so the next one down on the list is Carolyn Monroe, so that's right. Monroe. We are here today at last, finally getting to do our obscure movie episode. And this episode sees us introducing a new member of the B.I. Ah, yes. team. The Dalmatian. Yes. For those of you who don't know, Lacey finally died earlier this year, which is one of the reasons why there was a big break between episode 158 and 158.5. We miss Lacey. Yes. But we had to get a new loyal hard drive, and so this thing, which is about the size of my thumb. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now, and it's cool. It's about the size of his thumb, and it's black and white. Right. Hence the name. The Dalmatian. Yeah. It's been a while since we last. We should mention that this is, of course, the 2014 Obscure Movies episode, and I'm Tom DJ. And I'm Derek Ferguson. 
We, there's been a bunch of stuff that's happened since we... Uh, we are recording this now on the 25th, 25th of, June. of June 2014. And only 30 hours to go, my friend, before I am free at last, free at last. We know what we're talking about. Yes. You don't need to know. <laughs> uh, everybody knows the drill. We've got six movies to talk about. Derek yeah. picked three, I picked three. I mean, it's getting harder and harder, and we have to go to more and more illicit areas to oh find these movies. Oh, my God. When we started doing this, mm -hmm. it was easy to find yeah. obscure movies because these were movies that people didn't know. Right. But, of course, now with Netflix mm -hmm. and Amazon Prime and right. Hulu and DVD, there are all these platforms that people are now discovering right. movies. It is becoming harder and harder to discover movies that are truly right. obscure. Because now you'll throw out the name of a movie and you'll have 10,000 people come back on Facebook and say, Oh, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. I saw that last week. Yo, oh, what the hell? Oh, well, so. one of these movies that I have, you actually never heard of before I first mentioned it. No, I didn't. And that's the one I'm going to let you do first because, <laughs> okay. folks, Tom has been busting at the scenes for the past month to tell you about this movie. So we're going to let him go first, and we're going to let him do this okay. movie. And these are all musical films. I did a theme this year. Yes, Tom has done the theme. Me, with my usual hodgepodge, help the sculptor self. I have no rhyme and reason for the movies I picked other than I just like them. But Tom actually has a theme, which shows you his dedication mm -hmm. to this podcast. Which means Lord Love a Duck has to wait one more year. Ah, oh, yeah. Discuss. As always, I go chronologically, so we're talking about 1967's The Fastest Guitar Alive. This was the first in a series of... Mm, one! Movie vehicle starring the great Roy Orbison. The story goes that MGM was really, really excited by how well their Elvis Presley movies were doing. So they were looking for another musical star they could build movies around, and they, of course, latched on to the man who was goth before there was goth. Hmm. Roy Orbison. Good point. Good point. And what's the first thing Hollywood did when they got a hold of Roy Orbison, who wore black and sunglasses and did songs about people drowning and not having any love? They took away his sunglasses, took away his black clothing, and stuck him in this musical about Confederate spies. This is not a good film, but it's definitely one that you can say, I've never seen that before. When has that ever concerned us? Okay, directed by Michael, <laughs> Michael D. Moore. Roy Orbison plays Johnny, who is, as we mentioned, a uh, Confederate spy. Supposedly, Orbison signed for six movies. Really? And part of the deal was he transferred to MGM's record label. He came out the winner in all of this because he did much better on, on MGM than he did on his previous record label. But anyway, so Johnny is part of a ring of Confederate spies. Along with them is Sammy Jackson as Steve, Maggie Pierce has Flo, and Joan Freeman has Sue Chestnut. Now, they're traveling through the Wild West. This is the tail end of the Civil War. President Davis needs funds to continue to fight the good fight for Racism, I guess. Johnny and his friends decide they're going to rob the San Francisco Mint. <laughs> Since, of course, this is a spy movie, Roy has to have some gadgets, right? I would think so. So what Roy has is a guitar, which if he plays a certain note, a gun barrel comes out. Okay. I want to repeat that. He has a gun hidden okay. in his guitar. He'll strum the guitar. I gotcha, I gotcha. And then there's like a little slide whistle. Woo! The barrel comes out, he starts shooting Indians. They kind of succeed. 
And then they have to transport the gold. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you have to clarify that for me. What do you mean they kind of succeed? <laughs> well, they get the gold, but they got to transport it back to a Confederate sympathetic state. So they okay. And it's all about them trying to get it there in that last days of the war. It's a dumb movie. Granted, it has some great Roy Orbison songs in it. He gets to sing. There are seven numbers. At least he, no, because yeah. from what you're telling me, they took away everything that was iconic about yes. Roy Orbison and stuck him in a generic mm-hmm. movie that anybody could have been in instead of capitalizing I, I get on what made Roy Orbison Roy Orbis. I get the impression that MGM knocked on Elvis Presley's door one day with the script. Yeah. And he looked at the script going, nah, I ain't going to do this. And so they go, well, who else can we get? Let's get Roy Orbison. Let's get Roy Orbison. Outside of Roy, these are mainly kind of like television actors. But the music is good. Granted, there are a couple of clunkers. There's one song called Good Time Party. You're probably going to want to strangle yourself after hearing. I'm glad you brought that up because I want to bring that up when I do my review of mm-hmm. my first movie. What happened was that during the summer hiatus months, right. which we don't have anymore, but back during the 50s and 60s now we and have 70s. we first, second, and third seasons. Right. But back then, what happened was that a lot of producers and directors, in order to keep their crews together, right. would just do these crazy movie projects yeah. during the summer months. And I kind of get the impression from what you're saying, this might have been one it, of them. It's kind of the equivalent of Mikhail's Navy joins the yeah. Army. Monsters Go Home, the Batman movie. The Batman movie, right. My favorite song of all is a song called Pistolero, which Johnny sings in San Francisco. The interesting thing about these is that most of these songs are Roy getting in touch more with his country roots rather than his pop roots. So you've got a lot of these country ballads and such. There are two songs that weren't written by Roy Orbison, one of which, Snuggle Huggle, is another one of these songs that you will want to hurt somebody after listening to. Can this legitimately be described as musical? Or is it just a movie with songs? Seven songs. Um, (laughs) See, there's a difference. (laughs) In so much as the movie stops and there's a musical number. What reason do they give for him to sing these songs? Well, in one case, he's just singing. He's sitting by the creek, fishing, and he just decides to sing a song. Okay. Or, in the case of Pistolero, he's billed as a singer, so he has to actually sing. Gotcha. I should also mention the Indians. Because there are Indians, because there are cowboys. We have Indians? We have Indians. And they're obnoxious Indians. Iron Eyes Cody plays, I think, the chief. It's one of those movies where one of them has created modern art. And I think we should mention that, for those of you who are saying, well, Iron Eyes Cody... Probably the most famous thing he's ever done. Remember that commercial back during the 60s? Right. With the Indian was walking through where all the pollution and there was garbage all over the land. And he turns to the screen and there's one tear coming down Mm -hmm. his face. That's Iron Highs Cody. I am an Indian. I also represent death. Yeah. (laughs) Every once in a while they'll cut to the Indian tribe and they'll be doing something quote unquote modern and funny. And they are neither. Twice they try to attack... Roy's band, and twice they are repelled by the guitar gun. And the end. One gun. One gun. Guitar gun. Well, these ain't much of Indians. They're much, not much of Indians. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. This is some really good music, but just don't expect high art from this. And it's definitely one of these films that I can guarantee you, if you pulled it out at a party, people would go, I've never seen this before. Every once in a while it was on TNT. 
Really? Back in the 90s, and I don't think it ever had a DVD release. It definitely doesn't have a Blu-ray release, and if it wasn't for Warner Brothers Archives, I would not have a copy. But how did you hear about it? I saw it on TNT. On TNT, oh, okay. Once, because I had a friend who particularly liked these really obscure, weird movies and wanted to see this. So I watched it with her, and it was... An interesting experience, obviously, so imprinted on me, which is why <laughs> I actually bought a copy from Warner Brothers Archives. Okay. It's just such a strange... And the ending of the film is just so weird. You could figure that somebody should have said to them that it, this was a bad idea when the idea came from the writer to make everybody Confederate spies. So we're supposed to sympathize with the South during the Civil War. Well, why not? Well, they were bad people. Well, yeah, but give them equal time. We do live in the era of political correctness. 1967 was political correctness? (laughs) You caught me on that one. In 1966, we were big on political correctness back then. Exactly. But you recommend that we do see this, though. I mean... At least once, people. We've got what? I can't even name how many movies we have from the viewpoint of the Union Army. Right, of course. And the North. Well, this one is giving us an opposing view from the South. It's not much of a view. You could probably take out the whole Confederate thing whole and still have a movie. Yeah, well, from what you're telling me, this really doesn't make much of a difference. It could it's have been just bank robbers. Bank robbers, right. Yeah. yeah. They could have been con men, but for some reason it made sense to the director and the writer to make them Confederate spies. It's still available on Warner Archives, although not for much longer because they already put it on clearance. Wow. So catch it while you can, folks. Roy Orbison, without his glasses, is just a weak-eyed man. And I shouldn't mention that Warner Archives really, really does a great job of at least giving us the Mm -hmm. opportunity to see these obscure movies right. that we may never have seen and never have heard of, they are really digging into their vaults and getting a lot of these old movies mm-hmm. and making them available at an affordable price. And no, I'm not getting any money for that. Warner Brothers, you need to well, rectify that. <laughs> to be fair, they were one of our sponsors at one time that never paid us any money. No. So we shouldn't even be talking about them, but I have yeah. to be honest. Yeah, but I like to let the people know that they can get these things if they truly want to see them. Right. Oh, God, that's right. I forgot about the tinkle sounds. I beg your pardon? Okay. <laughs> I, I, we made reference to the fact that when the, I beg your pardon. the gun barrel comes out, you hear a mm-hmm. slide whistle noise. There's a scene where Johnny and Maggie, one of the dancing girls, keep referring to peanuts. And every time you hear peanuts, you hear like a little tinkle, like a bell ringing. Some of the Foley work in this film is so fucking weird. It kind of pulls you out of the film. It's just a weird film, people. You really should see it. Just take his word for it. Trust me on this one. No, but if you say it's weird, and Tom brought me the movie, because he said, Dirk, you gotta see this thing. But I want to see anything that has Roy Orbison anyway, because I love him. I really wonder what incentive they gave him to do this movie. Money. Well, that would work for me. He was signed to a six-picture deal. And this film effectively killed that deal. (laughs) But Roy didn't care because he was making money off the albums that MGM were reissuing. So it was, hey, I don't care. And where exactly was Roy Orbison at in his career when this movie was made is my I would have to think he was still pretty popular. Let's see something. Orbison, 
singles. Okay. Yeah, you... Okay, look at this. Roy Orbison discography. Probably his biggest song was Two Years Past, Pretty Woman. And the one that he's still known most known for. for. Singles, here we go. 1965, Pretty Woman. He did a cover of Let the Good Times Roll. Just looking for anything else in 67. I think he was about towards the end of his career, it looks like, because most of his more famous songs were prior to that. Blue Bayou, In Dreams, Crying. But I gotta think that he was still something of a known quantity. Okay. Since Pretty Woman was two years past at Mm -hmm. that time. So it wasn't like he was suffering for money. And as I think I pointed out, the MGM deal actually helped him, as opposed to Monument, who he was on it before that. So he actually made money off of this whole Michigas. <laughs> Which is always good. Okay, well, so, in order to transition from your movie to my movie, yes. I'm going to go into something that we touched on briefly. Which is what I was talking about years ago, folks, before we had DVRs and we had 500 channels. We had clear seasons. Mm -hmm. And during the summer season, TV production shut down. Right. For the 50s, 60s, and for much of the 70s. What we had, we had reruns. Like, for instance, I remember as a kid, I knew I could count on seeing The Prisoner every summer. Because CBS would rerun that. The infamous ABC, CBS, NBC Playhouse. Right. Which was the busted pilot from the previous year that they just threw out there for us to see. ABC had one that was called, like, Comedy Playhouse. Yeah. That's where I saw the infamous Snavely, the first American attempt to adapt Faulty Towers Mm -hmm. with Harvey Corman and Betty White. Right. This is what we had to watch during the Mm -hmm. summertime, because... The networks, and you got to remember, we're talking about the dark ages where there was only ABC, CBS, and NBC, mm-hmm. and their feeling was that, well, it's the summer. People aren't home watching TV anyway, which they really shouldn't be. Right. They should be outside enjoying themselves. Exactly. But so they just threw anything on there, and they suspended for June, July, and August TV production. Well, actually, TV production was being done for next year. Right. The actual vacation time was in the spring, between where the previous season was wrapped up and they, they were still getting ready for the next season. But the point I'm trying to make yes. is that we had a lot of movie projects mm-hmm. that came during the 60s and 70s because you had TV producers and directors. In order to keep their crews together, mm-hmm. they would put together a movie project because they knew this crew, right. and they wanted to keep paying them, and they wanted to keep them working, and they wanted to keep them... Because, of course, mm-hmm. if you don't have work, what are you going to do? You're going to find someplace else where you can work at. Psycho's probably the most famous movie that came out of the reason right. Alfred Hitchcock did it, because he wanted to keep his crew mm-hmm. together. That was doing the Alfred Hitchcock Presents on TV. You did, in one of our obscure horror movie episodes, a film that was designed by Brian Clemens to keep his crew together when it looked like the Avengers had finally been canceled. And Suit in the Darkness. Right. That leads me into the movie that I'm talking about, and I guarantee you I would not be talking about this movie except for two things. What I just described as far as a little history lesson on how movie projects were put together back during this period of time, and we're talking about 1966, and we're talking about two people. Leslie Stevens, who was doing the Outer Limits at that time. He wanted a project to put together to keep his Out of Limits crew together mm-hmm. and keep them working. Right. Why in the world he would pick a black and white <laughs> horror movie filmed in 
Esperanto. Esperanto, for all things. I have no idea. What is Esperanto, you ask me? Esperanto is a made-up language, folks. Made up by a guy who said, the problem with the world is that we all have different languages. And if we had one language, we'd all be one people, mm-hmm. and we could all sing, we are the world in this language. Right. So he created this language. Why Leslie Stevens decided to film this movie with his actors speaking in Esperanto, I have no idea. But what he did do, he got to star in this movie, William Shatner, of all people. And that's why we're talking about 1966 Incubus. You know me. If I tell you it's a movie that you honestly have to see to believe... Trust me, you have to see it to believe it. Oh my gosh. I'm going to give this movie a lot of credit. To look at it, and we've got it right up down to BITV Jumbotron, it's shot beautifully. It's got the feel and the look of a European art film almost. Exactly. I was getting Mm -hmm. to that, yeah. But you're absolutely right. When you look at it, it's shot like an art film. There's no real gore or Mm -hmm. blood. The plot is simply that you have Kia who is a succubus. And what she does is that she lures men to her death. As a matter of fact, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, we see her find a guy drinking from a well. And supposedly it's this well. You drink from it and all of your ills, spiritual and physically, are cured. So this guy drinks from the well. She lures him to the beach. And she promptly knocks him out, puts a foot on it. There's a great shot of her with her sandal foot on his head. And she drowns him. Now she goes back to the rest of the succubuses, including the mother succubus. And she says, I'm tired of doing this. Can't we do something else besides just luring them into their deaths? It gets in her head that she wants to lure a really good man to his death. Because the men she's been luring to their death are all guys who deserve to die. They're players. Right. That's where William Shatner comes into it. He's a war hero who is recovering from injuries during the war. And he moves into a farm in the vicinity of this well. He drinks from the well, and Kia runs into him, but she falls in love with him. Right. But the mother succumbent says, well, you can't do that. you got to take a soul to hell. Well, I don't want to take a soul to hell. He's a good man. No, you got to take him to hell. It goes back and forth. It ends up that they are in a church. William Shatner has been stabbed, and he runs to the church for refuge. She runs to the church, she renounces Satan, she renounces all evil, and the incubus of the title, who is a guy who has raped William Shatner's sister, he turns into a goat. In negative, no less. In negative, and attacks Kia. The movie ends with the two of them in the church, and the goat in negative. Yes. Standing and looking at them. Dun, dun, dun. Oh my goodness, what a goofy film. It's a goofy film, but I recommend you watch it because, first of all, it's got William Shatner in it. And it's we're trying to be fairly serious, too, if I recall. William Shatner is treating this shit like his Shakespeare, right. man. And in my research for this movie, I found out that the cast had no idea how to speak Esperanto, so they're doing their lines phonetically. The movie was shown to a bunch of people who actually knew Esperanto, and they kept booing. <laughs> no, apparently there's a lot of people, and they kept booing this movie because of the pronunciation. Yeah. Of the word. But they didn't know how to pronounce this crap. Right. It's a made-up language. It's a goofy movie. You don't have to pay to see it. You can watch it on YouTube for free. Mm-hmm. The entire movie. It's only about 70 minutes long. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. really short film. Yeah. It feels a little bit longer, though. I will say that much. 
because it is kind of... Well, that's because nothing happened. Yeah, it's very slowly paced, and you're right. It's William Shatner and a bunch of people kind of emoting. It's an art house movie. Yeah. There's no gore. There's no real violence. It's a rape scene that is, by today's standard, pretty mild. Not to say, and for those of you who are sensitive, I know you but it's rape. I am not downplaying rape, folks. I'm just saying that the way it's filmed... It's not as graphic as it could have been. Right, and yet you people still watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. Shut up. I would advise that you watch it strictly as a curiosity. It's got William Shatner. It's got William Shatner. It's got a golden negative. Yes. (laughs) So now I throw it back to you. Okay, we go one year further to 1968. And a very, very, very dark... I didn't realize how dark this film was, because I saw it a long time ago when I was in college. I'm talking about Wild in the Streets, 1968, directed by Barry Shear, with a screenplay by Robert Tom. This is a fucked up film. Christopher Young plays Max Frost, who is the product of a very, very bad childhood, overseen by his mother, played by Shelley Winters. He is created this sort of commune of young people around him. He's become a multi-million dollar singer. As I was watching this a second time, I realized that this film would be a really good companion to a film that you mentioned in the very first Obscure Movies episode, A Face in the Crowd. Oh, okay. Max is being courted by Johnny Fergus, played Mm -hmm. by... Hal Holbrook, who is a younger congressman who's looking to go into the Senate. And one of the things he's campaigning on is the right of 18 years old to vote. I.e., if we are asking somebody to die for their country, they should have the right to vote for their country yeah, as well. Absolutely. Okay, makes sense. Max, through various ways, manipulates congressman, soon to be Senator Fergus, into endorsing a 15-year-old voting age. And then uses it as a platform to get first... His whoopee, played by Dan Varsi, <laughs> and then himself into power. He becomes elected president of the United States. Wow. Then things go really, really... First, they, they create little concentration camps where everybody over 30 is held and forced to take LSD. And then things go wrong. That don't sound so bad okay. to me. Things go kind of wrong. <laughs> but that's just me. When Max realizes it's no fun being in the camp. I said this right up top, and I can't emphasize this enough. This is a very, very dark film. It's a film, obviously, where the youth culture is filtered through adults. And among the people I have not mentioned, by the way, in the cast, is young Richard Pryor, playing Max's drummer, Stanley X, anthropologist and author of the Aborigine Cookbook. When you were talking about this movie, Mm -hmm. and you were saying to me, just the other night I watched the movie, can't remember the name of this movie now, but it was another movie about kids that were in this suburban neighborhood, and they just went wild, and they started killing the parents because they had nothing to do. I just kept thinking of that song. Remember that song that was made by uh, My Chemical Romance? Teenagers scared the shit out of me? Yeah. <laughs> this movie falls into that category. It was made by yeah. adults who were listening to Teenagers scared the shit out of me. It's interesting how one of the things I'm positive that the director and the writer, point they were trying to make, they're trying to make it very subtly, is reminding us that the American Revolution was started by a bunch of young people who said in fact there's a direct line about that's what George III said to the colonists, trust me. Yeah. Throughout the film, Christopher Jones, who did not have the career I think anybody expected him to, because he's a very charismatic actor, but I think he only appeared in three films and then drug addiction caused him to disappear. 
is it that... But he, just to get kind of philosophical for a minute. That we, as adults... I'm going to ask you another question in a minute. Okay. But why is it that we, as adults, lose touch with our teenage, how we felt and thought when we... Why do we completely abandon that so that when we get to be adults... We don't understand what's going on with you. Well, we thought that way. You know how once I said that marriage doesn't solve all the problems, it creates different problems? Yes. I think it's something like that, where our problems evolve when Mm. we get adult. We are now in our 50s. Right. We are a little bit older than that. And we should mention Tom just had a birthday, folks. (laughs) And I climbed some rocks. And I think that's what happens, is our concerns change... And as our concerns change, those concerns we had as teenagers become more and more alien. This leads to my second question. Do you feel yourself that you have completely lost touch with, say, 18-year-old Tom? Well, to quote your favorite doctor, Tom Baker, what's the point of being an adult if you can't act childish? Well, that's true. I try to keep that. In fact, it's funny because of certain changes that are going through my life right now, which you are privy to. I was saying to my friend Vinny, who I seem to mention every episode these days. We gotta have Benny on as we, a guest host one day. That I've had to re-socialize myself because I never properly socialized when I was a teenager. Because that's one of the things you do yeah. in high school. That's one of the things that high school is. High school is a way of getting you used to the structure of getting up, going to work, going back home. I never properly socialized. High school for me, yeah. actually... First of all, I want to tell everybody, I did not enjoy high school at all. Because to me, high school was just preparing you for the real world. Right. You have to go someplace for eight hours a day and be with people you really didn't like. Mm -hmm. Doing a lot of things you really didn't want to do. Right. You had to learn how to accept this. Right. Which, of course, prepared you for going on to a job. But, yeah, you're right. In a lot of ways, that's what high school is. Which is why people, I guess, place so much importance on high school as a pivotal point. More people will talk about their high school years than their college years or any other time in their life, but it's high school, bam, when their life crystallized. Whereas college is where you're expected to have a job in addition to that. So that's the halfway house Yeah, between childhood and adulthood. And adulthood. It's weird. It's like I have to be in touch with my teenage self because I'm now having to readjust after all those years being sick. You have to now learn a lot of things you didn't learn before. Exactly. Which is understand. Yeah. I know for me, a lot of things I know that I did when I was 18, I still enjoy. When I talk to younger people and they talk to me about their issues and what's concerning them, I don't know. I can kind of tap into that. And even while I may not fully understand the reason yeah. why they are so upset about certain things, I can appreciate the passion behind it. Because there were things when I was 18 I was yeah. passionate about that are totally irrelevant in our society. But I can tap into that and I can understand that, which really is why I think that this movie, I'm going to look for it because I think yeah. it's kind of important. We should every once in a while see these type of movies to understand what it is that's going on with kids. They are like kind of alien beings, but once upon a time, we were that alien yeah. being too. For example, the average person I work with, well, at least for the next 30 hours. We can't talk last. about that, but free at last. Thank God almighty. Oh, free, free at last. They're in their 20s, and they don't understand why I don't want to just hook up with anybody. Well, you come from a different generation. Yeah, exactly, and I try to explain that to them, but that doesn't work. 
and how I'm looking for something different these right. days than I did when I was in my 20s. Especially at your age. And it, it's particularly odd, I guess, I, I've been thinking a lot about my 20s because, of course, I've been kind of sort of dating my college girlfriend. Right. We've been out a couple of times now after not seeing each other for 30 years. And that brings up some memories of college. Exactly. Well, of course. You can't get away from that. But this is about a movie. Yes. Remember? Yes, we were supposed to be talking about a movie. Before we went down that road... Let's go back to uh, the movie. The point I wanted to make about how they're trying to make a point about the Revolutionary War was started by a bunch of crazy young people who did not want to listen to authority. Christopher Young has a ponytail, but it's in the style of the wigs that people would wear in the 16th century. That little cue that's not at regular intervals. It's a fascinating film because it is sort of a microcosm of a certain time, that late 60s. Mm -hmm. While it's obviously filtered through older people, they don't exactly put down their concerns. In fact, they go out of their way to kind of make, even though Max Frost is a very sinister character, they also go out of their way to explain to us why he's so sinister mm. at this point and give us some sympathy. The mother is so overbearing, and when she discovers that he's now a big famous celebrity, her first thought is, I can get a facelift, and I can get my hair tinted, and I can do this, and I'm famous because I'm the mother of somebody famous. And she insists on driving his Rolls Royce when she forces herself back into his life, and she kills a kid. Wow. And he gets really upset at this. And he goes, you see what you've done? You'd kill God if he got in your way. Get away from me. Don't come. It's back to that thing that we always talk about, about the late 60s, early 70s cinema, about Shades of Grey. Don't get me wrong, this is definitely an exploitation film. But it's maybe a step above the average AI But here's the thing about exploitation films. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into this when I talk about one of my other obscure movies, but I want to touch upon it briefly. Here's the thing about exploitation films. A lot of times, exploitation films, because they were, quote-unquote, exploitation, they could touch upon subject matters that the so-called A-movies couldn't touch upon because the A-movies, of course, had to appeal to a broader audience in order to bring in those bucks. But exploitation movies could sometimes get into subject matters and themes that when you sit and look at it, you say, on second or third thought... That was kind of deep for something that's just supposedly disposable entertainment. Right. Which is why I think that we come back all the time when we talk about our favorite movies from the 60s, 70s. One movie that you just recently reviewed that I really love that movie because it's a perfect example of a movie where not one so-and-so in that movie is a likable character, but we're fascinated about it, and we're riveted, and we want to see what happens. The French Connection, too. We don't like none of these people in the... This movie could not get made today, because right. even our, supposedly, our hero, Popeye right. Doyle, he is totally unlike He's the ugly American. There's that one scene where he's interrogating the guy and telling how he's going to torture him to death. Yeah, he berates his partner, the French yeah. cop. The guy saves his life. The guy saves his life, and he's still calling him an asshole. Yeah. Nobody in this movie is likable at all. This movie could not get made today mm-hmm. because you know you would have a suit saying, well, we have to have a character that the audience can relate to. Save then, the cat, dude. Save the cat. Yeah, but you know something? It's a marvelous movie. Mm-hmm. If you take it in the spirit of the time which it was made, which is what, 
something you and I keep telling people, because I know I get from people, I didn't like that movie. It, it was racist. It was horrible. It was sexist. You, well, yes, of course it was. But it was made in the 70s. Right. Things then were racist and sexist. But you take that movie and you look at it as a time capsule of how people were back then, because this is how people right. were back then. This is how they dress. You got to this look is how at they this talk. Is, right. This is how they ate. This is how they thought. You got to look at these films as a little bit of a time capsule. Exactly. Wild in the Streets is definitely a little microcosm of late sixties youth culture. They all dress like they would in nineteen sixties America. Mm-hmm. And then you got the contrast of the adults who are all suit and tied. Hal Holbrook is neatly coiffed, and the only one who's kind of a little crazy is Tilly Winters, who keeps trying to say how young she looks. And you know, folks, anytime you have Shelley Winters playing a mother in a movie, yeah. the shit is not going to end well. No, <laughs> From Lolita on, right. anytime Shelley Winters has played a mother in a movie, Night in the Hunt that she played yeah. a movie, Ended up in the bottom of a lake. It does not end well at all. So that's one of the keys you want to look for in yeah. a movie. The Shelley went to play the mother. Oh shit! <laughs> now this appeared on an MGM Midnight Movie double feature with Gas. Mm. But I think that most of the Midnight Movie double features are out of print. If I remember correctly, I think I found this on YouTube and had to do a conversion so okay. I could get it on DVD. I don't know where else you could find it, but it is surprisingly dark. I was taken aback. The last time I saw it was in college. And I'd just like to mention right here that, for those of you who don't know, I'm pretty sure most of you do, YouTube is a terrific resource, especially now. You remember the bad old days when people would post movies in like 10 minutes? (laughs) But now you can post an entire movie. On YouTube, which is how I saw Incubus. Right. And the Assassination Bureau, one of our favorite movies. Certain films are being rescued from the darkness. That's how I found Homebodies from last year's. Oh, okay. I found it on YouTube. Well, that's how I found the next movie I'm going to talk about. I found that on YouTube. But I also want to mention for those of you who have Xbox like me, if you don't know, now you can watch Netflix on your Xbox without having to get a gold membership, which mm-hmm. was the case before, which I never did because I said, I'm already paid for Netflix. Why can't I just hook up Netflix on my Xbox? Which is what people who had PlayStation 3 could do. So now they're doing it, I guess because now I got the Xbox One, they said, well, screw those people. But anyway, a lot of these movies you can find, if you look for them, Right. don't just look for the big blockbuster movie that just came out. Do a search and a lot of movies that Tom and I talk about on our obscure thing, you can find them. And there are also some decent songs in this film as well, because Max uses his charisma as a rock singer to sway people. He writes a song called 14 or Fight to get people to go to this protest to get the voting age lowered. The music sort of acts as a Greek chorus reflecting what Johnny's intentions are. Okay. Throughout the film. It's just a really excellent movie and doesn't deserve the darkness that it's in right now. Hey, and Richard Pryor. Hey. Any movies got Richard Pryor? And a hot Asian chick. Diane Varsity could take her leave. I think they were trying to make a to Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor kind of sex symbol back during the sixties. Yeah. But I never was I never like, saw the Yeah, I was like eh. Okay, is so it back on it's me back now? Back on you now. Okay. This movie that I'm going to talk about now. It came about as a lot of things do. I was talking to somebody on Facebook, and I had mentioned that we were going to do 
an obscure movie episode. They asked me, they said, well, Derek, have you ever done the car? And I said, the car? Mm-hmm. What the hell is a car? And the gentleman who I was talking to said, man, you've never seen the car? The car? So I did a little bit of research, and everybody that I asked said the same thing. Man, you've never seen the car? And I said, wait a minute, what is this about the car? Man, you've got to see the car. Is it about a car? Yeah, it's about a car. I had seen advertising for the car. Right. I had seen little snippets of the car. Mm -hmm. But I never watched the car because it's a movie about a car. Right. Why would I want to watch a movie? Only movie I want to watch about a car is Speed Racer. Right. I watched here the car. Comes, here comes Speed the car. Racer. It's a- I've been on YouTube and I watch the car. Hey, the car is pretty damn okay. good. <laughs> the movie stars James Brolin. A lot of people underrate James Brolin, but he was in a lot of damn good movies. This is right. a guy I remind you that at one time was a serious contender in the top three to be James Bond. Mm-hmm. They had signed him. They had signed him, yes, well, for Diamonds Are Forever. But he did screen tests and everything, which again, go on YouTube, you can see the screen tests that he did. There's a movie I cannot remember the name of, but I'm going to find it, I'm going to post it so you guys can see it. This movie is one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. He played a guy that for some reason or another he fainted and got knocked out in a robbery but he was locked in a department store and this was back during the 70s when what they would do is some department stores and this was something they actually did they would let attack dogs out at night right. and let them roam the store. That was a TV movie I remember That was this. a made for TV movie. That's one of the scariest things I've ever seen and it's about this poor guy trying to survive and get out and let somebody know he's yes. locked in the store while trying to fight off these vicious Doberman attack dogs. Mm. And he's the only character really for much except in the beginning and at the end. But it's a terrific movie. James Brolin is a very underrated actor. I like him a lot. In the car, he plays a guy, he's a sheriff in a small town it's in Utah. At the beginning of the movie, we see two bicyclists backpack and enjoy it, and there's a guy and a girl, and they're in love. And the car comes up and just wham! <laughs> kills him flat out. We see a big bloody smear on the sidewalk. And so James Brolin and the other cops investigate. They come to realize that their town is being terrorized by this car, mm-hmm. which we assume is possessed. One of the beautiful things I like about this movie. We get no backstory on the car at all. There's a scene where the car actually opens up the door. He confronts the car, yeah. and the car stops on a highway. Stop and the car. No, it just stops. It opens up, and he sees that there's nobody in there. Now, is the car inviting him to come in so that he can use his life force to keep on powering it? Because we do see shots from inside the car, and it's tinted yellow. So we get the impression, and the ending gives you the impression that it's some kind of demonic force that is driving this car. But why is driving around the American Southwest of Utah killing people? Uh-huh. We have no idea. No idea. But it's very good. The movie has been described as Jaws on Land. Uh-huh. And that is a very apt description because that's pretty much what we have here. We have a demonic car just going around randomly killing people and nobody knows why. The things I like about this movie, James Brolin's performance. We got Ronnie Cox. Ronnie Cox does 
somebody going to pieces better than anybody else. Because mm-hmm. the car is going around killing people, and he's an alcoholic, and he keeps sneaking out to his trunk to keep getting sips out of the right. and he keeps getting progressively crazier and crazier as more people are getting killed. These are cops. You have one guy, he's an Indian, and he's speculating that, well, it's a demonic force that's seeking revenge on the white man. Everybody's got all these theories, but nobody really knows what to do about mm-hmm. this car. You got Kathleen Lloyd. Kathleen Lloyd is an actress who I've talked about before. I think the main reason why I really love her is because she's a dead ringer for Sarah Silverman. Uh, if you've ever seen her, most people will remember from Magnum P.I. Right. She was a district attorney, but she was also in a western with Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando, The Missouri Brace. She was in a couple of movies back in the 70s. Right. Look at her. She looks and sounds exactly like Sarah Silverman, which I suspect is why I like her so much. But I love her in this movie, especially in one scene where she confronts the car. She's got a whole bunch of kids because she's a school teacher. And she runs them into the graveyard because the car is chasing them. And the car stops. And she gets out and she's taunting the car and she's cursing at the car. Much like Sarah Silverman did in the opening scene of The Way of the Gun, where she's cursing out the two mercenary guys. And she figures out that the car can't come on there because that's holy ground. It ends up that James Brolin and these cops that are completely outmatched concoct this plan to bring the car into this canyon and bury it with this dynamite. It's illegal dynamite. R.G. Armstrong, somebody's family got killed by the car, so he's got a reason to go after it. If you like Jaws, watch this movie. I was looking for it before. It used to be on YouTube. It appears that it's been taken down for some reason. I don't know why. But if you can find it anywhere, I would heartily recommend that you watch it. It's a great Friday and Saturday night movie. Double feature it with Jaws. Watch Jaws and then watch the car. Right. I think you're going to like it a lot. I was honestly surprised at how much I enjoyed the car. The car. There's so. this whole subgenre of evil car movies. And I really don't know how obscure this is because apparently a lot of people, well, it's obscure to me. I'd heard about it, but everybody kept telling me, you've never seen the car? Oh, man, you got to see the car. Because you got this, you got Christine, you got the hearse. Yeah. You got Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive. The Wraith. Yeah, Ch- Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen and Sherilyn Fenn. And these all kind of came out with about 10 years of each other. They were all pretty much around the 70s, 80s. Maximum yeah. Overdrive, of course, was Stephen King's First directorial effort. First yeah. of, uh, one. Years later, both he and Emilio Estevez came clean. And it was actually Emilio Estevez that directed mm-hmm. a lot of that. He directed 90% of that movie. And he had to because apparently King was so whacked out of coke at that time, he didn't know what the hell he was doing. And the crew knew he didn't know what he was doing. And they told Emilio who probably was one of the most experienced people that was working on the movie at the time. He just stepped up to the plate because he said King didn't even know how to place a camera. To shoot it. Yeah, to shoot it. And he was in his trailer most of the time doing coke. Much like Tombstone, the director, after he died, George P. Cosmatos. Yeah, he had made an agreement with him and Kurt Russell, actually directed that movie, but they had an agreement that... Kurt Russell wouldn't admit that until after he passed away. Right. It was just because the guy was sick at the time. He really wasn't able to do it. During the 70s, you had a lot of these possessed cars right. or cars out of control movies. Running around doing bad things to people. Yeah. 
Maximum Overdrive really isn't that bad of a movie. Tom, I gotta be honest, I don't know if it's because I'm getting old. I used to be really hard on a lot of movies. But now, Maximum Overdrive, I remember when I first saw it. And I saw it on 42nd Street. Right. I said, that's a piece of shit. <laughs> but I watched it three weeks ago. Yeah. I said, it really isn't that bad. Maybe I'm, I don't know. Well, yeah. So is it back on you now? I guess it's back on me. And a film that I did not know that you enjoyed so much until... After I found it on a double disc with Cowboy Bebop the movie. And when I mentioned that I had this, you went nuts. Because apparently this is a favorite film of yours. What's that? Talk about 1981's American Pop. Oh my god, American Pop. Which was during the period where Ralph Baskey was trying to prove that yes... It was possible to do adult animation in the United States. We should mention, there was a period in American film. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you back me up on this. We had American Pop. We had Hey, Good Looking. We had Heavy film. Metal. Mm-hmm. We had a Rockaroo. Movies that were marketed more for their rock soundtracks yeah. and their voice casting more than the story. Yeah. The story, we didn't know what the story was. But they would tell, well, you ought to come see because it it's got songs by Deborah Harry and, and Cheap Trick and, and Devo. You know, and, and, and yeah, Devo and Izzy Pop. But this was during a period where Ralph Bakshi was really trying to push the idea of adult animation. The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings film that everybody forgets. Was Ralph Bossy. Which I actually liked a lot. Now my friends who love Peter Jackson, Jackson yeah, they disowned me. But I actually liked the Ralph Bossy. I remember seeing that in the movie theaters. And so did I. At the Ziegfeld. Yeah, that's where I saw it at the Ziegfeld. With my uncle. That's my where I saw uncle. that. This was another one. This is a really great film. It's really interesting. It's a generational saga. Uh, a whole family line of musicians. And Bosky keeps visiting these different characters as we go from the teens to the 20s to the 30s down to what was then the modern day, which was 1980. Yeah, it starts with Zalmi. Yeah. And how he has to leave, which I assume is Russia. Right, Derek. And he's a Russian Jew because it opens with a pogrom. And his grandfather is at the altar and he's saying. I that was his father. His father, who's saying yeah. like Jewish prayers, Prayer. and right. he gets cut down by a Cossack. And then we see that in a really wonderful montage yeah. how he has to leave and, and come to, to America. New York, yeah. Where he falls in with a music promoter and becomes part of that whole musical vaudevillian circuit. Ragtime and vaudeville. Yeah. Well, ragtime comes later. His mother dies in the triangle shirtwaist Yeah. And there's that one wonderful moment where he's identifying the body, and he and his surrogate father, a showgirl and a clown, walk away, and it dissolves from the Lower East Side to Times Square. He uses stock footage at times. Yeah. And this is one of those films that was done in one of Ralph Bossi's favorite methods, which is rotoscoping, where he shot the actors first, then animated over the film. Right. And it goes into the 20s with the gangsters, and then World War II. Well, what happens is that Zalmi grows up. Right. what is that he wants to be an entertainer. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happens is that him and his surrogate father, I can't remember the guy's name, but they have some wonderful scenes together. There's one scene where Zalmi and the guy are sitting together, and he says, what is it with you? When I was a kid, I thought you was an old man. He said, but now as you're getting younger, and I'm getting older. And the guy said, well, long enough, we'll catch up. He said, yeah, we'll catch up, and we'll beat the battle. (laughs) But there's another montage scene where it shows that they go overseas to the U.S.O., yeah. Right, and they entertain the troops. And Zalmi gets wounded in the throat, and therefore he can't sing. But his whole thing, he always wanted to be entertaining himself. He could dance, he could sing, he could write music. He writes music for his son, 
who is a musical prodigy at an early age. Mm-hmm. He was playing the piano like a virtuoso. But his son also has no desire to be an entertainer because he resents his father. By now, Zalmi has gotten right. so deep into organized crime because we see in one great scene. And this movie just got one great scene after another right. where Zalmi actually goes in front of the United States government and testifies right. against organized crime. These and, people were my friends. And also, remember... The surrogate father that we keep talking about, yeah. he has that great line where the guys say, that son of a bitch is going to sing. And he says, yeah, that's all he ever wanted to do. <laughs> say, yeah. But in a different way. So now we follow Zalmi's son. As he goes into the army. Yeah. And gets killed tragically. Again, in another wonderful scene where it's a wounded German soldier. And he, he plays a German song. And, and, and the, for one moment, that soldier is lost. Yeah, and this is a beautiful movie, folks. It's a great scene. And he's lost in it. And he actually says, Danke. Before he kills the guy. He yeah. machine guns him to death. Uh, oh, my God. It's a shocking scene that comes completely out of the mm-hmm. blue. Because you figure now that the guy said, well, he played the song for him. He's going to let him go. Right. No, nah, he didn't let him go. So, it's a great scene. There's another great scene that comes before that because he's playing the harmonica. And one of the other soldiers said, Man, you can't play that thing for shit. Why do you do that? He says, Yeah, yeah I know. Won't fit in a foxhole. He said, Yeah, but I can't fit a piano in a foxhole. Which shows that he still loves the music. Right. And then we follow his, his son, son, who is stuck in the 50s. His mother is remarried. He's the only progeny of the previous. Who made one record, which his mother has now sequestered herself in her bedroom, and she right. listens to. But she's married into organized crime as well, and she's got other she's kids. She's the daughter of the mob boss. Of the mob boss. And right. she's got other kids who resent him because she can't let go of this past relationship that she had. Right. And he just ups and leaves home one day. He so just, Benny, that's the character Benny, we're talking yeah. about. Benny runs away. Benny takes up a lot of the movie, actually. Yeah, he, we follow he's like Benny a, a major lot. part of This is where we get to the main meat of the movie. Benny runs away, goes on his little Kerouac odyssey, meets a girl with cornsilk hair. Oh, that's a wonderful In Kansas. Scene. And he goes this whole thing about popcorn, picks popcorn, corn, candy corn. This is Kansas. Singer who plays this character. We're in Kansas, man. Because he steals a car. Yeah. And he picks up an odd like, assortment like, of people. And then when he gets people club out of that car. 50 people climb out the car. And he stops and he says, well, where are we? We're in Kansas. And he insists that the people stop and take right. a minute. He said, we're in Kansas, man. The land of Clark Kent and right. Dorothy yeah. and Toto. Yes. And I want a minute of silence for Kent. Yes. And I crap. And he does that thing with the hand. He said, yeah. Time for me to go. And right. then I said, well, what are we supposed to do? The car is yours. Yeah, the car is and yours. And gets all excited. It's stolen. And then they all climb in the car. Yeah. And he said, it's stolen. stolen. And then they all climb out. Except for the hooker yeah. who says, for sale. She got yeah. the <laughs> I can't emphasize how great Rick Singer is yeah. playing this character. Because there's that other scene, because he gets to the West Coast, and he's a dishwasher. And he decides to quit, and he keeps going, these hands are permanently buttered. The guy who hires him says, what are you doing? You're supposed to wash dishes. He said, I can't wash dishes no longer. <laughs> Why? Because these hands are permanently puckered. And he goes, oh. 
The boys is a pretty okay guy. Yeah. He said, well, what do you want? He says, well, I want to go west. He said, there ain't no more west. He said, you're in California. The only west is the ocean. Uh, and Betty hooks up with a band that I think is loosely sort of supposed to be Jefferson. Jefferson's Air, the airship, yeah, yeah, airplane or whatever, yeah. And becomes an They're kind of like Fleetwood Mac, yeah. kind of like an amalgam of different 60s bands. And he becomes an of Hanley, who's the singer. Who I feel is kind of based on Janis Joplin. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. She ends up like Janis Joplin. Yeah, unfortunately. But he's a songwriter. Right. He can't perform, just like his father and grandfather. Right. But he's brilliant at writing songs. And he writes songs for this band. For this and band. this band becomes very successful and then kind of implodes. And Benny meets Little Pete, who is obviously the issue of himself and that corn silk haired waitress yeah, he encountered. Yeah. He moves back to New York. And it's a beautiful use of that song in there, darling you send me. Yeah. Because when he meets this kid, mm-hmm. he hears that music and reminds him of first of all, the use of music in this movie, folks, is absolutely flat out fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, the only problem I have with the use of music is the way that the film offhandedly ascribes so many different musical milestones to this one family. Yeah, especially Benny. But because Benny apparently wrote a Dylan classic, Don't You Want Somebody to Love, several different genres, let alone several different artists. But even in the movie, at the end, there is a pretty lengthy thing that says that, yes, these are the people that actually wrote these songs they're ascribed to this character, yeah. but we don't want to diminish exactly. the fact that these are the actual people that wrote this song, and we only attribute it to this character for, for the better for dramatic life. But and then it, there's that heartbreaking scene where Benny, a total drug addict, he's had enough. He's trying to get Pete to go back to Kansas. Eventually, he gets up, he hands him the harmonica, says, "My father." Yeah, yeah. My father yeah. gave me this, and he says, "Stay there." Walks away. Man, that song grabs me. Where apparently it's supposed to take place in Brooklyn. Yeah. And he's sitting there and he's totally strung out on drugs. And Lil Pete, it's a great relationship they have because Lil Pete is the adult. Right. And Benny is the child, actually. Mm-hmm. And he's telling him, Well, are you going to write songs today? And he actually takes one of the songs that Benny has started and he finishes it. And they're sitting on the bench outside. And he says, Yeah. And he takes out the harmonica. Right. Father gave this to me. He said he was supposed to be some kind of musical genius. I don't know. And I want to give it to you. And Lil Pete said, Why? And Benny said, Well, why do you think? Man, the way he says it, just, it's so much he says that he's not saying and right. it's understood. That this is as far as he's ever going to go to acknowledging to that little Pete, Pete that, right. yeah, I'm your father. Even and though Pete, I think, knows. Oh, yeah, sure, Pete knows. Right. That's why he stays with him. And this leads to the last person we follow, which is little Pete, who grows up to be Big Pete, the drug dealer, as we hear Lou Reed's Waiting for the Man. And we're now in the era of punk rock. They have yeah. another great montage. As he's going scene. from person to person. Where he's selling off. the drugs. Right. Yeah, because he become a cocaine dealer or heroin or whatever. But I love that scene where he goes into the record company. Yeah. And the band is waiting for him. They said, man, we're waiting for you. We can't get started. Yeah, he said, I want something else. I'm selling songs. Right. Man, we don't want your sauce. We don't want your coat. And he said, fine. I'll keep the sauce. He put it in the case, closes it, and I'll keep, keep the, the coat, coat too. Right. And he said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Okay, we'll listen to one song. Right. He said, okay, one song? He said, one song. And then he get up, and you know what he does? He does That's night moves. moves. Holy yes. shit. Blows the roof off. There's another great montage in the control room is one guy in there. Yeah, you, and then, <laughs> that's another thing that's great about this film is the use of static images. Yeah. Because frequently, Bashi will cut away 
from the action yeah. to these static images of caricatures. And that's one of the moments where that's they what keep a, cutting to the control room where there's one guy and then they cut to him, they cut to Lil Pete doing night yeah. moon, then they come back. That's two guys yeah. up there. Then they go to back them doing the song. Then the three guys, one of them is on the phone. Yeah. Then they cut back and now they're recording it. And then at and the end of the it's like ten guys. The end of the movie <laughs> is finally after all these generations. One of Zalmi's progeny becomes a star. Yeah, he's on stage at a rock concert performing. You can tell by the way the two of us have been talking about this film and how it, much we love And it ends with what, of course, Freebird. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to end with Freebird. What else? American pop, folks. You can tell how much we love this movie. It's amazing. I have loved American Pie, and I saw it in the theater. Me and about 18 other people in the theater <laughs> gave it a standing ovation. People look at us like we were crazy. We ain't care. We said, yeah. this is, and I have seen American Pop, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 times right. since then. All the time. It's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. If I had to give anybody a Ralph Bakshi movie, i said, okay, watch American Pop. And it's just so sad that he never got the traction on this whole kick that he was that we can do animation that is for adults. This isn't the only one. Hey, Good Looking was another one that he tried this again. And I honestly think if he had did this in live action, it probably would be more better remembered mm-hmm. and more highly regarded. Animation fans like me and you and Ralph Bakshi, right. we know about it. This is one of those movies that I know of that everybody who has seen it does have a bad thing to say about right. it. I have never met anybody who does not like American Pop. It is... An outstanding movie in every sense of the yes. word, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I'm glad that you brought it to our attention. Okay, so you have one more film to talk about. I have one more film to talk about, and this is a film that I just watched recently. <laughs> and I had another movie, and I jettisoned it for this one. Tom and I talk freely and openly and honestly, and a lot about movies of the '60s and '70s, which is what I think that we consider to be the classic. Grindhouse era in movie making. In the 80s, yeah, you still had Grindhouse, but we were kind of moving toward the canon era of action movies that culminated with Die Hard, which Mm. is nothing more than a big budget Grindhouse movie, really. When we talk about Grindhouse movies, we're talking about movies that were... Okay, in the words of Joe Dante, this is the best way I can put it. In this movie I'm talking about, Joe Dante is interviewed, and he says, when you look... At movies that were made during the 60s and 70s. Looking at it now, from a modern perspective, these movies look like they were made on another planet. The images, the themes, the subject matters were things that you simply cannot do in movies nowadays. Mm -hmm. And he's absolutely right. That is what this movie, Machete Maidens Unleashed, is about. It's available on Netflix right now for streaming, and I recommend it for a variety of different reasons. One of them is that as knowledgeable as I am, I did not really appreciate the value and the understanding of how much the Filipino culture impacted upon the making of these movies. There's a great thing with our good friend Roger Corman, right. who we both love. But Roger Corman says, we went down and filmed there because we literally could do anything we want and nobody said anything. <laughs> 
they have favorite survivors like Sid Hay, right? Our girl Pam Greer, mm-hmm. and they say pyrotechnic team. When you hired them, you counted how many fingers they had yeah. left, and the guys who had the most fingers—that's the guy you hired because he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. If you had a pyrotechnic guy, he had three fingers. You didn't hire him. They said that Marcos, who ruled the Philippines, he gave film crews the army. He said, "Here, go ahead. Right. Do what you want with them." They said they hired Filipino stuntmen for five dollars a day. Mm-hmm. So all these filmmakers ran down there to make these low-budget, grindhouse movies that we still enjoy today. At least I do. I don't know about the rest of you. I love them myself because, first of all, I actually remember seeing a lot of these movies in the theater. And I still enjoy them today because of the fact they don't make movies like this today. I saw, what was it? The Big Dollhouse. Oh, my God. That is such an insane movie. When you watch it, there's lesbianism, there's drug abuse, there's torture, there's rape, there's, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And you're watching and you say, my God, did human beings really make this movie? But it's a wonderful movie that illustrates not only the movie maker thing, but what was going on politically in the Philippines at right. the time it was being made. Which is another reason why I'm recommending this movie. It's not just about the movie maker process. If it wasn't for... The political regime at the time, led by Marcos and his wife, Imelda Marcos, these movies could not have been made. There's a wonderful 20-minute sequence toward the end of the movie where they talk about, and I had never thought about this movie in this fashion, where they talk about how Apocalypse Now is actually the very last real Grindhouse movie made. Because it was made in the Philippines. Right. I had never looked at Apocalypse Now as being a grindhouse movie, but the way they were explaining it, I said, they're right. Not only for the subject matter, but the way it was made. Everybody actually went insane making that movie. Everybody was doing drugs. Martin Sheen caught a heart attack. Right. Marlon Brando showed up 100 pounds overweight. Nobody knew what he was going to do because he hadn't bothered memorizing his lines. That whole speech, he made, he made that up on the fly. Right. It's a totally insane movie that we regard today as a classic. But when you look at the making of it, it's just totally bizarre. But it's a movie that I hardly recommend to those of you who have been listening to me and Tom for a while. You know how much we love this genre of film. If you want a crash course in Grindhouse Cinema, then I hardly recommend you watch Machete Maidens Unleashed. Right. Now, I've seen this film. Yes, you have. And, and what fascinates me is some of the people... For example, they <coughs> talk at length at Chris Mitchum. Yeah, Robert Mitchum's Robert son. Mitchum's son yeah. Who made, apparently, some, like four or five of these Filipino films back to back to back. Um, mm. The budget that you and I probably have in our pocket right now. They talk about the infamous midget spy movies. With Wang Wang. Wang Wang, yeah. The actor who died, unfortunately, young... But he died that young because they said that when they did the autopsy, he had a heart the size of a chicken. And I'm not saying that to be funny, folks. They actually say that in the documentary. Mm -hmm. But the guy lived because he got to be a major star in his native Philippines because of these spy movies that he made. For your height only. And apparently he enjoyed his success. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad. And what they also talk about is the conditions, how there were no real hospitals and bugs the size of small dogs. A large part of why I enjoy this movie is that they let a guy who I really don't hear a lot from in these type of movies is Sid Haig. And Sid Haig gets to talk at length about his relationship with Pam Greer. One of the directors of one of their movies, he said that I put them 
together because I thought they would make a good team. I don't know why nobody had ever thought that before because they had been in movies together, but as adversary, this one movie that he put them together, he was revolutionary and Pam Grier was his girlfriend. And they've been lifelong, they're still friends to this yeah. day. The great Danny Period, who wrote the cult movie series right. of books. And one of my personal inspirations and influences as far as reviewing movies goes, they interview him. Matter of fact, if they just did the whole movie interviewing these people, I would have been happy. Joe Dante, John Landis, who really cracks me up because he's the only person that I've known that'll come out and say, Roger Corman is full of shit. (laughs) He said, as long as Roger Corman makes a buck, he don't care how good or how bad the movie is. Which, to give him his credit, it's all Roger Corman himself has ever said. Mm -hmm. He's been very honest with that. I highly recommend this movie. If you're not doing anything this weekend or whenever you listen to this, by all means, turn on Netflix and watch Machete Maidens Unleashed. Okay, so let's review our three films. And then we've got some Twitter questions. Oh, my God. Yes, believe it or not. My three choices were all musically themed. Yes. And they were... 1967's The Fastest Guitar Alive, mm-hmm. the first in a series of one Roy Orbison starring vehicles where he plays a Confederate spy with a gun hidden in his guitar. Mm-hmm. 1968's Wild in the Streets, a very, very dark tale of teenage rebellion. And finally, 1981's American Pop, which I think we both agree is probably the best film of the six that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, I definitely would say if you're going to watch any movie out of the six we talk about, please watch American Pop. A generational saga about the history of popular music. In America. Okay, and my three, I reviewed Incubus, the 1966 mm-hmm. art house horror movie, filmed entirely in Esperanto, a made-up right. language, and starring American cultural icon William Shatner. Now, I'm not going to say that this is a movie that you have to see, but if you're a William Shatner fan, and if you want to see something that is definitely off the beaten track, by all means, watch this. I heartily recommend you watch The Car. (laughs) If you want to see a horror movie about a demonic car running down random people in a remote Utah town, this is your Huckleberry. And Machete Made His Unleashed which is a documentary about filming grindhouse movies in the Philippines mm-hmm. and how Philippine politics and culture impacted upon the American grindhouse film culture. I hardly recommend this. Now, ever since we got our Twitter handle, which is at BITD Show, we do ask people to send us questions and the like such. Yeah. And we got a, a couple of them, and one of them ties into somebody who passed away today. Oh, Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach, yeah. yeah. Obvious question, the best Eli Wallach movie. This is from Neil Morgan. Good and bad and ugly. Yeah, that was my thought as well. Probably good and bad and ugly. Second, comic book movies are massive. What's to be the next big thing? At this point, I have no idea. These things go in cycles. It could be we may see the Western come back. Who knows? Superhero movies. I foresee superhero movies being the next big thing for at least the next 10 years. In one of the earlier times when we were supposed to record this episode, mm-hmm. Neil asked... The greatest combination there never was, star and director. Oh, you mean actor and Yeah, like director. what combination you think would have been great that never happened? Pam Grier and Sergio Leone. I'd pay for that. Yeah. He would have done what Quentin Tarantino did. He would have created something around her, a around Western her. epic yeah. as a female gunslinger. This is something that I never quite considered. I have to get back to Neil on this. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing off the top of my head. Damn, Sergio Leone and just about anybody. Martin Scorsese and James Coburn. Ooh, yeah. Well, he would have loved James Coburn. Okay, here's one. Lee Marvin and our boy Sam Peckinpah. Ooh. 
You yeah, like, huh? Yeah. Now you're cooking. Because that would be one tough film. But you know what we're going to do? What? Why don't we come up with a list and then we come back and we do come this back episode. An entire episode. And we do an entire episode on this. Who made that suggestion? Neil Morgan. Neil Morgan? Okay, Neil, just for you, we're going to come back and we're going to do that. Now that's coming to me. Now, Neil also asked about films that need a remake or a sequel. Oh, Neil, you had one question already. What? But I want to point out that there was a previous episode where we actually covered that. Uh, one of our earlier episodes. I think it was somewhere in the late 20s. I'm actually trying to look up on veteranthedarksite.com, which is run by, of course, the amazing Mr. Kelly Loge. Absolutely. Who we should mention. Of course. And we should also mention our musical director, Kaylin Conley, who has become a proud papa. Yes, he has. Congratulations to... uh, your pants can swim! Yeah, <laughs> and his lovely wife. Arr. Let's see, now that during the last Marvel. Uh, it's somewhere around here. I think it may actually be 31. Here we go! Episode number 32 The Savage Flint Shadow on the Night Road to Conan, where we talk about films that we want to see remade. So, Neil, check out episode 32 for some ideas of films that we want to see remade. What else do we have here? Adam Orchikowski wants to know when we're going to have him back as a guest. Anytime he wants to. Yeah, he also wanted to know if there was a specific theme to this episode. Well, I think we've already answered that. Okay, before we go, we want to mention that this episode has been produced by Desmond Reddick and Robin Townsend. So, thank you very much. We're doing an episode where you'll hear how you, that's right, you, can become a producer on the show. That's right. So we want to thank these people for their help. Robin Joe Townsend? Yep, Robin Townsend. My girl. There you go. So thank you very much, guys. So that's it. One more year in the book. Until next time, this has been Derek Ferguson. And this has been Thomas DJ. And remember, if you're in trouble from... Crazy pop singers, wielding gun-hiding guitars, driving demonic cars. You can always turn to Better in the Dark, and we'll protect you. Go Go see see that that movie. movie. Good night. Good night. God bless. I don't know if I know all the words or not, but I'm going to try to sing it for you. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Alan and Daniel of the Firewall Iceberg Podcast, Sean Engel of Just One of the Guys, Des Reddick of Dread Media, Eric Froman, of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark Facebook page. Better in the Dark once ran into a graveyard to avoid being killed by something demonic, but damn it, Dan DiDio just wouldn't leave us alone. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at B-I-T-D show, and check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that if you wake up to find Shelley Winters as your mom, it's time to just give up. That's where the whole thing's at now. Yeah, we got a voice and it's getting much stronger. Now we ain't messing around any longer.